to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, resiliency, and anything that could be associated with those topics. I'd like to remind everyone, if there is a topic you want us to talk about on the show, please feel free, send me an email. There is a... Uh, a button on the Voice America page for the show where you can send me an email. I do get all emails and I do respond to all emails and we'll see about finding someone to talk about your topic or getting you on the show. If there's any sponsorships or advertising you'd like to do on the show, we have spots for that as well. Again, just send me an email and we'll get you some information. Now, long-time listeners will know that I've mentioned that I'd be attending the Continuity Resiliency Today conference in Toronto. CRT conference and that's where I am today and as with last year we are speaking with many of the presenters at the conference and today my first interview of the conference I'd like to introduce Ms. Uh, Dr. Sorry, Robert Quigley. Robert welcome to the show. Thank you Alex for having me. Could you uh, let our guests know a little bit about what you do and you know how you got to where you are today? Sure. I'm a senior medical director of an international company called International SOS, which is headquartered in Singapore. And it's the world's largest medical assistance and security company that manages millions of mobile workers that work for corporations that subscribe to our services. Those corporations are in every industry sector, including but not limited to government, non-government, finance, manufacturing, automotive, scholastic and the bottom line is when a member somebody whose company has subscribed to our services gets into trouble when they cross borders whether it be medical or security they contact us either through an app or through the telephone we deliver our services in a decentralized pattern which means they are delivered through local hubs and we have 26 of those strategically located around the world and the uniqueness of that business model is that we are able to manage events, medical and security, by people who are familiar with that local language, local culture, local limitations, and determinations can be made as to whether or not that individual can stay where they are, if, for example, management of a medical situation, or whether they have to be uh, upgraded to a uh, center of medical excellence or moved out of harm's way if it was a security event. Just out of curiosity for my own um, information purposes, is it just for organizations or do you do it for individuals as well? About 95-96% of what we do is for corporations and we have okay. over 10,000 corporations that are global. They're not just uh, American and Canadian, they're European, they're Chinese. Five, six percent of the subscribers are individuals and they can just go on our website and for example, if a family was traveling or an individual was traveling uh, with their spouse or partner, they could sign up and get assistance coverage. And I want to make it clear, it's not an insurance company, it's an assistance company. So we work seamlessly with, and in an agnostic fashion, with all the major insurance companies around the globe. Well, great. Well, thank you very much and welcome here to, the, to Toronto and the conference. Now, you're speaking during the conference and your topic is an organizational culture of health and wellness enhances a resilience agenda. Now, my first question for you is, for organizations, we're always worried about, you know, the bottom line and, you know, profitability and, uh, you know, getting things done. So why should mental health be a concern for organizations? Mental health right now, Alex, is at an epidemic, I should say mental illness, is at an epidemic proportion right now as declared by CDC and WHO. It is impacting every organization in every sector at a pace that is so alarming 
that coming back to your question, it will get the attention of the C-suite, who are the ones that are making the comments that you just made, because it's impacting productivity. And productivity is directly correlated uh, to um, the behavior and the wellness of the workforce. And if the workforce is impaired in some capacity, be it physical or mental, they're not going to produce, stock values go down, and the C-suite gets angry. So you're absolutely right. Issues are decided upon within the C-suite by the decision makers, and it's all about the bottom line. But the bottom line is not mutually exclusive from the health of the workforce. Why is mental health becoming so um, uh, prevalent, I guess, in in organizations? What's, what's causing it? Because I, I was actually speaking with my mom believe it or not, the, the other day, and I was telling her that I was going to be here doing some interviews, and I mentioned a couple of the presentations, and she was kind of surprised herself. You know, why is that such a big deal now when it didn't seem that way so long ago? What's changed? Well, here in Canada, there's somebody that I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and it's the CEO of Bell Canada. And he decided uh, to start a campaign called Let's Talk. And I believe it was based on a close family member of his, either his mother or his wife, I can't recall, who suffered from mental illness. And rather than keeping it uh, silent and maintaining the stigma that prevails with declaration of mental illness, he decided to erect signposts uh, across the Trans-Canada Highway from Newfoundland all the way to British Columbia. And all it says is, let's talk. And that's had a tremendous impact in the workforce of Canada and I think Canada is ahead of the curve in most Western countries because they're able to talk about mental illness so your mother's point is well taken most people don't talk about it and we didn't talk about it historically but today we all talk about it I thought when I first started to look into this as a parent and as somebody who oversaw multiple scholastic clients that it was a millennial issue it's not it's ubiquitous. It's impacting the baby boomers. It's impacting you, Alex, me, our families. Everybody at this conference will be immediately uh, able to describe somebody within their close circle of family and friends who suffers from mental illness. And so it's come to the forefront. And now, uh, to make matters even more exciting in Canada, it's impacting uh, Bill C-45, which is your duty of care law. And in most Western countries, the duty of care falls under the civil code. In Canada, after that Westray mining accident in Nova Scotia back in the 90s, Parliament appropriately stepped up and said, we're going to make duty of care a concept that's going to fall under the criminal code. So if an organization, regardless of what sector they may fall under, is not meeting their duty of care in the eyes of the court, they can be held criminally responsible. And the biggest example of late, it was about three or four years ago, was with the Metron scaffold collapse here in Toronto, mm -hmm. where that company was not meeting its duty of care. And for those listeners of yours, Alex, who don't know what duty of care is, it's nothing more than doing the right thing. It's got fiduciary, it has ethical, it's got moral, legal implications, but it's doing the right thing. And companies need to develop policies and procedures to mitigate against and this is a big, big phrase, foreseeable risks. That's the operative word, foreseeable risks. Once the CDC and the WHO declared mental illness as a foreseeable risk, that means all Canadian companies are on notice now with their workforce that they need to be supporting them by providing resources to address their mental wellness. And if they're not, they could be held uh, criminally liable. And then by, uh, to my, my, almost my first comment, when they don't do that, then that's when it, they start suffering themselves, not just from a legal perspective, but from their productivity and the bottom line. And they now they can be perceived as a company that wouldn't care, doesn't care, right? And, and, and that's exactly right, Alex. And you take that one step further, it impacts their brand. And no company wants to have their brand impacted. So it would behoove any organization to take a step back, do an internal audit and say, are we providing policies and procedures to mitigate against the foreseeable risk of mental illness. Now, many of these global companies, as many global companies that are headquartered here in Toronto and in other cities in Canada, that applies to their workforce that cross borders. So if they're crossing borders into countries where it is so severely stigmatized and or there are not resources, 
company has to come up with some sort of a solution as to how do we support somebody who has a mental health crisis when they cross borders. And of course, just to add a little bit more excitement to the issue, people don't have to declare it. It's privacy. So an employee doesn't have to step up and raise their right hand and say, oh, by the way, Mr. Employer or Miss Employer, I suffer from mental illness. That's a privacy issue. So the companies have to assume that everybody is at risk, which they are. I was just going to ask that. So if, if it's a privacy issue and I don't have to say that, you know, I have a, 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 an issue that, you know, I don't want my employers to know, how can employees plan for then what they don't know? How, how do, as you said, they assume everybody has a problem or is a risk or, you know, how do you even try to approach employees to uh, want them to stand up and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I, I do have a problem. It's a really, really challenging issue. And it's not so much that they want an employee, because people are different. Everybody's like mm -hmm. a snowflake. Some people are more comfortable talking about it, some not so comfortable. Uh, certainly the younger people, the millennials, seem to be much more open about it. Uh, the baby boomers, not so much. So I don't think the the goal should be to get people to step step up and declare that they have a mental illness. Rather, the goal should be to educate everybody within the workforce. And that should be mandatory education. I think the other issue that I have noticed over the years that I've been dealing with this subject globally is that an employee is more likely to confide in another employee rather than escalate to a supervisor or somebody higher up in the company, even in HR. So it would be very, very appropriate that companies educate the entire workforce, including those folks that are on the front line, because somebody is going to more likely go to one of their peers and say, look, I don't feel good about myself, I'm feeling hopeless, I'm feeling helpless. And then that individual, if they were educated, know that was a telltale sign and could then have an intervention made by escalating it themselves on behalf of that individual. Because I could tell you countless stories of where that didn't happen, particularly in the, in the energy mining and infrastructure spaces where this is so ubiquitous that it's, it's, it's paralyzing the productivity of many of these companies, including companies uh, headquartered right here in, in, um, in, in Canada. So many times there would have been opportunities for intervention, they weren't made, and so a suicide happens, which is mm -hmm. obviously the extreme end of somebody who's depressed. And, and, and without getting too academic here, the, the, the operative uh, word here is stress. Everybody's under stress. You're under stress, Alex, you've got a whole agenda today, I've got an agenda today, I'm traveling. It, the world just doesn't stop. We've got our social media, we've got our phones, we're on them 24 hours a day. Stress, stress, stress. And stress is manifested by depression and anxiety in most cases. So it's management of stress. It's the, 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 it should be the objective of any organization to address stress within their workforce. What can we do to mitigate against stress developing in the workforce? And it's not a simple answer. It's a multifactorial solution. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require a change in culture. Hence, my presentation is all about mm -hmm. culture of health, changing culture. Well, that leads me to a question. If, if we're all under stress, how can organizations recognize that maybe an individual is at risk who hasn't, you know, isn't willing or hasn't said anything about it? How do we, uh, you know, as corporate leaders say that, hey, you know, Robert, I think, you know, are you okay? Is, you know, you seem under stress. You know, is it right for me to do that approach you? Or how should organizations do that if, if they recognize something? And what are some of those triggers that they should look out for? Well, I think it's, um, you're on the right track, Alex. I think that uh, it's important that everybody is at least aware of some of these early telltale signs. Because as I said a few moments ago, it's more likely going to be a peer-peer interaction. That could be a mm -hmm. minor, that's M-I-N-E-R, to another minor, M-I-N-E-R, in the mines. And so those folks in particular should be at least aware of some of these telltale signs so that an intervention can be made before it escalates to a something dramatic like a, a suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, keep in mind that every step where an intervention is not made, it starts impacting the performance of that individual, minor or otherwise, M-I-N-E-R or otherwise. That ultimately, that performance would, would, would result in absenteeism, presenteeism, which is when you're there but you're not doing anything, and injury. And all of those things 
affect productivity, which comes back to your very original question is, you know, companies are just worried about the bottom line. This is the bottom line. You know, it's not so clear on what is a, um, a return on investment when you start dumping resources into the mental health of your workforce. But believe you me, when they start looking at some of the metrics that are now coming out through some of the reporting standards that are now becoming commonplace within many corporations, they will recognize very soon the value of, of putting resources into place. I'm not sure I answered the, the question exactly, but uh, I got my point across. No, no, you, uh, I think you did. It was interesting you, you mentioned some points that have actually been around for a long time. Absenteeism, things like that. I, I remember hearing that 20 years ago, but I didn't link that. Uh, maybe it just wasn't linked um, to mental illness at that time, and now it is. Correct. And that's, that's I, I guess it's awareness on all sides, not just, you know, on one side trying to get awareness to, you know, their employees, but um, the general populace now. And maybe it goes back to those billboards that you mentioned across the country, you know, and there are television ads with that and some radio ads that also go along with that um, Let's Talk campaign. Right. So with the greater awareness on all sides, I guess that's addressing where you're coming from now. Exactly. And, and I think that... Those companies that, from my perspective, I believe to be successful in a holistic way in terms of how they manage their mobile workforce are those companies that recognize the value of a healthy, safe, and well workforce. Because if the workforce is feeling healthy, they're feeling safe, their well-being is good, they'll produce. And it's, it's not rocket science to see that connection of how you connect the dots. Those companies that don't recognize the value of having a healthy, safe workforce that are comfortable with their well-being are way behind. And, and, and the sad thing is, is those are the companies that are the most impacted by mental illness. Employees want to see that you're doing something for them, Alex. They mm -hmm. want to see that you you care about me as an employee. What are you doing for me? So, so we can talk about the fact that the non-communicable diseases. That's something I'll be talking about later today. Those are the the cancers, the cardiovascular disease, uh, including strokes, uh, obesity, uh, um, uh, lung disease, diabetes. The these diseases are taxing. The workforce at such an alarming rate that it's impossible to get ahead of them. Now, many companies are saying we're going to start an anti-smoking campaign, we're in a weight loss campaign, we're providing nutrition counts and so on. What they're not correcting, however, is how mental illness plays into each one of those. So if you don't address mental illness, which is in itself a non-communicable disease, you're never going to get ahead of the, the other standard ones of the, of the chronic lung disease, the heart disease, the diabetes, and so forth. So they need to be looked at together. They're not mutually exclusive, and a successful company recognizes that. And on that, we're going to end our first segment. Today, we're talking with Dr. Robert Quigley, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected and welcome back to the show. We are talking today with Dr. Robert Quigley from the CRT Conference in Toronto. Uh, doctor, just before we went away uh, from our first segment, you started to talk on NCDs, uh, non-communicable diseases. In your presentation, you've got some stats and you've got some other uh, things that relate to mental illness. I know you started touching on it um, before we went away. Can you elaborate a little bit more on these NCDs? Sure. I, I think that uh, finally uh, companies are um, recognizing the significance of NCDs in terms of their impact on, to use your vernacular, the bottom line. And uh, if you look at the economic burden that NCDs are ha having globally, we're looking at uh, potentially $50 trillion uh, by 2030. That's the impact these uh, diseases will have um, economically. If you also look at the NCDs uh, that I've uh, previously defined, uh, they are responsible for somewhere around 60% of the deaths of the employees within these organizations. Again, that has a significant impact on any organization. Not to mention all of the, the health care costs that go with management of these NCDs. Now, many of these NCDs are accelerated through a variety of risk factors. Smoking, lack of exercise, poor nutrition. Obviously some of them are genetic and you can't impact those, mm -hmm. but certainly there are modifiable risk factors. And many companies are saying to themselves in every sector, I've got a hold of this. I understand NCDs. I'm going to start programs within our corporation to address those modifiable risk factors. But there's a missing link, and the missing link is mental wellness. What they don't understand is that if the individual who is suffering from one of the aforementioned NCDs, from diabetes, heart disease, uh, lung disease, if that individual happens to be an addict, if that individual happens to be an alcoholic, if that individual happens to be sleep deprived, if that individual happens to be depressed, if that individual happens to be anxious, you can put as many new programs in place to modify the progression of their disease and it isn't going to work because there'll be no motivation mm -hmm. from the employee. So I think that a successful culture of health will address in parallel the NCDs and those modifiable risk factors and mental wellness. They are not mutually exclusive and they need to be addressed together. In a way, it's not just take care, I hope I'm saying this right, not just take care of the physical, but you've got to take care of the mental. Correct. And, and I think, Alex, you, you had asked earlier, and, and I recall in the first segment, I, I didn't respond well when you asked me specifically what can companies do. And, and companies always get a concern when, when there's the threat of a, of a new investment, uh, putting more money back into the system, despite the plethora of data that's out there indicating the value of, of such uh, uh, such uh, um, uh, financial uh, uh, input. Um, having an EAP program, an employee assistance program, making that available to all, having the education that we talked about, mandating that education so that every employee has to have at least yearly an update on behavioral health issues, how it impacts themselves, how it impacts their family, how it impacts uh, their fellow employees. And, and that's a good starting place, and that doesn't cost a lot of money. That can be just a benefit that you add to your 
uh, to your armamentarium of, of health benefits. Uh, that should be a slice of your health benefit package to any employee within your company regardless of sector. You, you brought up an interesting point there because I was thinking of it, it with regards to family and you know, potentially friends that someone with a mental illness may actually be impacted by someone they know who has you know, cancer or one of these other diseases and that's what's affecting their work. It's not necessarily um, them who are suffering from one of these uh, NCDs, you know, but they can be still be impacted by it and again that could impact their well-being at work and their behaviors at work. Absolutely, and, and, and that's a really, really valid point, Alex, because what you've done is you've connected the dots and indicate that we're all related in some capacity. So everything that somebody in my family may do and my peer group might do, uh, my colleagues might do, it impacts me either positively or negatively. And that's why that campaign with Bell Canada, which I've already alluded to, Let's Talk, is so fundamental. Let's just talk about it. Let's bring it out in the open. So that you had asked earlier, Alex, should we, if we are have a sense of well-being be approaching those colleagues of ours that, that look distressed or look like they're suffering again that's a slippery slope we, we, we really mm -hmm. want to have professionals engaged we really want to have people that are objective engaged and that's the value of having an EAP program that, that, that is free within the company that anybody can call at any time and those are particularly of value uh, when you're dealing with a mobile workforce it's on the road a lot well, I've known a few people that have actually utilized those programs, and they have helped. They pointed them in the right direction, got them to uh, a doctor in one case, a lawyer in another, you know, to really help them so they didn't actually show up at the workforce every day, or the workplace, sorry, every day, with that additional amount of stress, not knowing where they can go to help. You know, and they called the EAP line, because uh, sometimes it's a hotline or something like that, and got some assistance. So I, I've seen firsthand that those do really help. Indeed they do, and indeed I could tell you countless stories of, of just having an EAP program uh, has demonstrated its value time and again, time and again. As I mentioned earlier, Alex, when the company employees see that you're doing something about their welfare, you care about them, it's remarkable how that will inspire them to maybe work a little bit longer than their actual shift, maybe work a little bit harder, maybe take a little bit less of a lunch. Again, not rocket science. This is just behavioral well-being. And it's not necessarily, um, you know, people have to work longer to be productive, but they work better and they feel better. Exactly. They feel right. better about themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And that, if, if they feel better about themselves in the workforce, then I'm assuming if they're sitting beside someone who may not be, uh, you know, as, I don't want to say as productive, but may not be on the same level as they are, their, their positive, better behavioral at, at atmosphere can rub off on other people, right? You know, I, my mother always used to say that to me, that my late mother, that, that um, positive energy and enthusiasm is contagious, and it is. So your point is spot on. You and my mother both had the same philosophy in life. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned in your presentation something about um, mental illness in the UK with the Duke of Cambridge. What Can you give us a little bit about that and why that's so uh, important? Well, I, I, uh, I do mention uh, the Duke of Cambridge and I... Uh, if I remember the slide correctly, I, I say that this isn't just a Canadian issue. This isn't just an American issue. It's an issue all over the world. And I was very, very delighted to see that the Duke of Cambridge has taken it upon himself, uh, and I believe uh, with the assistance of his bride, uh, to, um, to talk about mental illness in the workplace uh, in the UK. Uh, the UK is struggling with the same issues that we are here in Canada and in the United States. And when you have a spokesperson who carries that much significance talking about that subject openly, it kind of gives the green light to everybody else to start talking about it. It's like our, our CEO at, at, at Bell. Um, mm -hmm. when, they, when leaders start talking about this openly, it becomes chatter at the at the lunch tables, it becomes chatter at home, and it becomes something much more acceptable. And when it's acceptable, we can address it much better.
Well, I think your slide, if I'm not mistaken, had something to the effect of 22% of the UK workforce um, possibly impacted by mental health. Is that a conservative number or is that an inflated number? What, what are your feelings on that? Again, not that I would ever connect you, Alex, because this is your show, but if, <laughs> if I remember the slide correctly, it said something to the effect that 23% of employers believe that absenteeism uh, was related to okay. mental illness. To your earlier point, and to give you credit, when I first saw that announcement, I interpreted it the exact same way you did until I read it a second time. Maybe that's the difference between and Canadian English and, yeah. and, and British English. <laughs> but, but, but to your earlier point, um, the literature suggests that one in five people will suffer from some sort of mental illness, and there's a whole spectrum, as you know, in their lifetime. I'm going to tell you it's one in four. I'm going to tell you that 25% of people, and it might even be higher than that. A very, very worthwhile paper to get off the internet is one that's updated every year, and it's called the Healthy Minds Study, M-I-N-D-S, study. And it's produced by MIT and the University of Michigan. And although it's involving American schools, the principles are exactly the same in Canada, they're the same in, in the UK. What they did was they surveyed, uh, I think it was 106 schools, undergraduates and graduates, and they asked them a series of questions. The most significant piece of data in that report that is updated annually is that 30% of undergraduates and graduates suffer from some sort of depression and or anxiety disorder. In other words, they've been diagnosed with or treated for an anxiety or depression disorder in the previous 12 months. Based on what I do for a living, and I oversee millions of, of, of cases, uh, not necessarily directly, but, but my company does, I'm going to say that's closer to 50%. So that means that 50% of the men and women that go to post-secondary school in Canada and the U.S. have been diagnosed with or treated for mental illness in the previous 12 months. Put that into numbers, Alex. If there's 20 million young men and women that go to post-secondary school uh, yearly, 10 million will have been diagnosed with or treated for a mental illness. Now, those are the people that are entering into many of the white-collar jobs that are in the companies that many of your listeners uh, probably uh, uh, work for. And so they have to ask themselves, is our company accommodating these students with this new culture of, mm -hmm. of mental illness, which is what they're bringing to the arena? And if they're not accommodating that, are we meeting our duty of care? Remember, we talked about mm -hmm. Bill C-45. So it all comes back to best practice. And in Canada, the incentive here is it's the law. You want to mitigate against foreseeable risks. And a foreseeable risk is mental illness as declared by the CDC and WHO, as I've already said. Well, that's got me thinking if um, the numbers... Uh, you know, are, are, are true with regards to students and, you know, in post-secondary schools, et cetera, and, and maybe even uh, high school and junior high and things like that. If organizations and, and larger companies have these EAPs, which hopefully people leverage and their organization has, what can schools or universities do? do is there something for them? Because they, the EAPs then would only come into play for the, um, and, and maybe I'm assuming wrong, would only come into play if the university had for their faculty and you know organizations or for their whole staff but then you've got all these people that aren't at that level yet so is there something available for them boy that's a, a really really uh, good question alex i spend um i would say 80 percent of my time in the last three years uh, looking at the challenges that organizations face uh, in managing um, their employees particularly uh, with respect to mental illness and a lot of that time is spent in the scholastic arena because to your point it's a huge problem and international sos uh, we spend a lot of time supporting uh, schools and the study abroad schools and in canada it's almost it's not quite at this level yet but it's almost standard for a student to take a semester abroad if you have a student with some underlying behavioral health challenges and they're not going, Alex, to London or to Paris or to Frankfurt. They want to go to Manos, Brazil, or the DRC in Africa, where there's absolutely zero resources. And there's even just a 
small bit of underlying mental instability. You put them in these kinds of unstructured environments, you can imagine the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing that outcome on a regular basis. So I ask myself the same question that you just asked me, what should schools be doing to support uh, the behavioral health of their students if the statistics are as significant as what I alluded to in that healthy mind study? And I think at the very least, uh, it's all about education. It's all about transparency. It's all about making sure that the student health organizations, all campuses have a student health, that they have a whole behavioral health uh, uh, element. I have uh, two uh, growing uh, children myself, and um, and obviously I'm very sensitive to that, so I looked at what their respective schools had available. And I was sad to learn that the cue to get into these mental health uh, clinics on campuses is so long and it's so many days to get an appointment it's as if there's not enough resources and I know really? that wasn't unique to their schools you move back to the secondary school level which I think your question included as well mm -hmm. I can remember uh, uh, giving a presentation uh, at a secondary school and I said to the audience look to your left and look to your right one of you is harming yourself and another one is on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety pill and that's the fact. And these are the, the young men and women that are taking the extra time on the SAT exams, and the ACT exams, these college entrance exams because of this, uh, uh, these uh, illnesses that have been uh, uh, documented and declared. But they're taking that baggage with them to college. And the college graduates are taking that baggage with them to the workforce. Mm -hmm. So you and I and our contemporaries need to address that now it's urgent now it's not going away so how are we going to accommodate this excess baggage if we want to have a productive workforce and get back to the bottom line and on that we've come to the end of our second segment today we're talking with dr robert quigley from the crt conference in toronto we'll be right back Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. We are back today at the CRT conference. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Robert Quigley uh, about mental health. Uh, doctor, in our last segment, you got me thinking about, um, uh, I know a lot of what you're saying with mental health is global. I'm wondering, are there some areas in the world that are more susceptible to mental health than others? Are the, um, you know, there's gotta be differences. We can't, I, I don't see us all, uh, 
all around the globe getting the same kind of treatment or the same options or, or even being impacted the same way. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or I sure do. And, and I think um, you, you bring up a very, very sensitive issue, Alex, in that many of these Canadian companies are deploying workers across border to countries where mental illness is so stigmatized, it's not even talked about. There are no resources. Hospitals will not even acknowledge uh, mental illness. And consequently, people will suffer to death, uh, which is which is tragic. Uh, unfortunately, if you look at the Asian uh, countries, some of which are incredibly sophisticated, there is a real stigma uh, with mental illness. And so they do not have the resources, uh, even in, in developed countries like Japan, which I consider to be one of the most sophisticated uh, countries in the world. They do not uh, recognize mental illness as, as an organic disease and hence do not have a lot of resources. So when somebody who is a Canadian or U.S. Uh, worker gets deployed uh, to Tokyo, for example, and they have some sort of a mental health crisis, uh, it's difficult to get them treatment locally because there's nothing there. And a lot of the times uh, they have to um, be extracted and, and taken to a place uh, for further management, which is prohibitively expensive. It results in brand exposure uh, and so on and so forth. So so to your question, there are many countries, Middle East uh, similarly, uh, do not uh, have a lot of resources to manage uh, mental health crises because of the stigma associated with that. So I'm still very uh, hopeful uh, in that the campaign that was started right here in Canada with the Let's Talk, that that becomes disseminated around the world and we all talk about it because, as I said earlier, mental illness is not going away. It's part mm -hmm. of our world in which we live and and the, the rapidity with which we can communicate, the fact that we communicate 24-7 through all of our handheld devices does nothing more than exacerbate the problem because there's no downtime. And all we're doing is we're just constantly being uh, uh, pushed and pushed and pushed. And, and, and like anything else in nature, we have a breaking point and people are breaking all the time. So is that, kind of, just to back up a little bit, is it a cultural thing or is it just simply because the message about mental illness hasn't spread that far? Because to your, to your original point, uh, the Let's Talk campaign started here in Canada. That has had a great impact on uh, spreading the message you know, throughout Canada uh, into the United States, which I, I know it has some of its own um, messages in place as well, you know, getting to the UK. So is it just a matter of time before you know, Japan and the Middle East, using the two examples you used, uh, before they start to recognize this? Or is it cultural that, no, it's taboo? Well, both. I mean, I'm uh, uh, cautiously optimistic that the word will get out, that uh, there are benefits to destigmatizing mental illness. Uh, those benefits uh, uh, are clearly uh, seen in the um, uh, in those examples that we've already talked about, where workforces become much more productive when they are uh, emotionally and behaviorally and mentally healthy. And uh, once uh, these companies in the aforementioned uh, regions uh, that you just alluded to uh, begin to recognize that by, by looking at the bottom line, um, I think there will be a bit of a paradigm shift, but that isn't going to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the United Nations and the WHO, the World Health Organization. I know you've mentioned that they've declared mental illness you know, as you know, something that's great importance and needs focus. Are there any other things that they are doing to um, help promote and get get the awareness and the message out there, or how else are they being in, involved without you know not just saying yeah it's a critical of importance? What else are they doing? Do you know? Sure, they the United Nations um, stakeholders decided back in 2015 that in in order for us to to uh, uh, have a sustainable planet with prosperity and, and um, the people uh, survive, um, we need to start focusing on what they defined as 17 uh, sustainable development goals. And they published those and they presented them together, UN and WHO, and their objective is to have these goals accomplished uh, towards uh, preserving the, uh, the planet and the people and prosperity by 2030. And the one that I'm talking about here at this conference is, is number three, which is all about 
the health and wellness of your workforce. But there are 16 other development goals they have that, that, that talk about uh, equality amongst men and women, um, uh, the, the uh, climate control, uh, uh, preservation of, of, of the environment. Um, there's a whole lot of uh, items that are, that are in the, the, the 17 goals they have. It's, it's quite ambitious. Uh, but um, uh, I, for one, uh, applaud them, and, and, and I'm hoping that this conference uh, will address and disseminate the word that there, there are goals here uh, towards sustainability. This, this conference is, is focusing on resilience, but to me, resilience and sustainability are not mutually exclusive. You, you, to have a sustainable uh, uh, product, uh, you have to have resilience, uh, and, and, and mm -hmm. it goes both ways. Not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to anyway. With 2030, do you, with all regards to the mental illness, do you think that is an achievable goal for 2030? Forever the optimist, I'm going to say yes. Nothing more? <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, for organizations, we, wow, we only have uh, seven minutes left or so. Um, if I have an organization, what can I do right away to start making a change to address mental illness? I know you kind of touched on a few, but if I'm in charge of an organization, what can I start doing right away? Talking about it. Start talking about it. And I think that to develop a successful cultural shift within your company, there has to be buy-in by all the stakeholders, and particularly the C-suite. And the C-suite wants to know, well, what's the bottom line here? What's in it for me? How is that going to uh, help us as an organization? And so I think the people that are in human resources or whatever other department is charged with bringing mental illness uh, and wellness to the forefront, they need to have metrics. And they need to have metrics that, that are location specific. So if it's a global country, uh, sorry, a, a global company, uh, there may be different metrics um, from, from country to country based on the culture and, and, and limitations and so forth. So metrics is data and data is the new currency. And mm -hmm. that's what C-suites look at. So if those people within an organization can socialize the concept, get the right stakeholders engaged, put together teams to address this, escalate that up to the C-suite with numbers, with metrics, and demonstrable numbers of the value of such a program, those are the companies that will thrive. Should everybody be involved with that or just the C-suite? Like from the employee level, general, you know, the whatever the you know on the totem pole whatever the lotus lowest position is to the highest should they all be involved with that absolutely apps every single person who calls that company their company needs to be involved they need to know about uh, the reality uh, in which we work in which we live and they all need to have some skin in the game and until that time uh, we're not going to get anywhere the only reason i keep bringing up the c-suite is based on your very initial comments, which is they're the ones that are writing the checks. They're the mm -hmm. ones that are shifting the resources from one department to another. They have to have metrics. They have to have reproducible metrics. They have to have metrics that are applicable to the different uh, regions where they have assets. And they've got to be able to see those metrics and see how implementation of a mental health program can improve the bottom line. Well, I guess understanding that too will make a difference for themselves because there's the C-suite. They're not you know, immune to having their own levels of stress and, and things like that. So they would have to be involved because they could also be one of those people who are being uh, affected by some sort of a mental illness. And as I said earlier, that may actually be the circumstances under which Bell Canada stepped up mm -hmm. and created this, this enormous campaign from Newfoundland to British Columbia, Let's Talk. Well, we only have two minutes left Believe it or not, our time, I told you time flies by quick on this. Uh, and for our last minute, minute and a half, do you have any closing comments you would like to, uh, to uh, convey to our listeners? I think uh, I, I'll give a little uh, historic comment only because I'm getting on in my years. And the comment is the following. I used to be in the clinical arena for 20 years, and I enjoyed that career. I left that uh, to become part of the corporate world where I've been for the last 12 years 
What I've learned in the corporate world is there are catchphrases that uh, circulate, uh, much like a whisper on Wall Street to increase a stock. There are catchphrases that circulate between different sectors, and there's one or two every couple of years. I can remember when duty of care was big. I can remember when ethos was big. I can remember when corporate social responsibility were big. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing today is resilience and sustainability. And those are going to be the catchphrases to pay attention to because companies are starting to buy in to those concepts. And in that vein, they are starting uh, to report some of the efforts they are making towards those sustainable goals that I talked about a few minutes ago. Those 17 outlined by the UN and the WHO. The reason why reporting through the GRI, which is the Global Reporting Index or any other vehicle, is of value to an organization, and many Canadian companies are now engaged in this process, is because investors will look at your scores. And if investors see that you are making an effort, you as a company are making an effort to achieve by 2030 those 17 uh, sustainable development goals, they're going to invest in you because they're going to say this company has got it going on. So there's a payback here mm -hmm. that needs to be recognized and it's all going to be about reporting sustainability and resilience efforts. Well, great. And we've come to the end of our time. Uh, Dr. Quigley, thank you very much for joining us. A lot of great information for our listeners out there. Uh, again, I'd like to remind everyone, uh, please feel free to send me an email with any comments or topics. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.